0: the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is
1: episode 47 with your host, Ray Hurto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, choose Boston.
2: Dan Rubin, HRV Homes.
1: See how I just did that? I kind of, yeah. Wow, we broke up the the, uh, HRV error. And
0: also, I think we blew out everybody's ears there, Mark. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> look I'm, well, I think, really bo- I'm really bored these days okay i, I need- think we were talking about it we're going to try
0: and upgrade our sound quality where i look into a couple microphones so this might be the last time half of us are recording on our phones yeah let's get into it we were talking a few episodes back about uh, how to build a house or how to build a uh, multifamily house in an urban environment and we were using a three-family home as kind of an example so I believe when we last left off, we had the foundation in place. We have our utilities set up, kind of the site work. So now we are ready to get into the framing aspect of it. Yesterday, we tried recording this and failed miserably. So um, guys, what were we talking about yesterday in terms of just getting the timeline of the plans drawn up and getting that figured out and, and working with structural or if your architect hires structural
1: uh, so, my, my sense is that you need some basic understanding of, uh, of structural engineering as, as a developer. You can build anything you want, but why would you? You know, so often we get these drawings from an architect that have all sorts of steps and cantilevers and shifts within uh, what's otherwise a nice, clean bearing line. And, and you're going to pay for each and every one of those moves. And I'm not suggesting that we all build rectangular boxes, but if there is a move to be made and and you're going to pay for some additional structure or a transfer beam, then I think you need to have a good reason for why it should be favoring the street or something that something will be appreciated and seen.
2: I completely agree. There's, you know, this is as much on you making sure that you're intimately involved during the. Planning process with your architect and designing the the building itself before you pass it along to your structural. Because how many times have you passed it along to your structural engineer? And he's like, Well, this is doable, but yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> you yeah. know. But you have a you have a moment frame here, you have structural steel all the way down that column, you know.
2: Meanwhile, your joists are gonna run this way for like 12 feet, and then they're gonna shift directions for the next 16 feet. And good luck running your HVAC. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like.
1: So, I mean, the fundamental understanding here is that you want to, all your loads or the weight within the building should should stack nicely to the extent possible. The exterior walls should land on foundation elements. If you have a bearing line that's running through the building, it's nice not to interrupt that frequently as, as you go up. Or otherwise, if you do, you, you need to transfer that load so that that can be done. But like, I think, one, one very typical example you might look at is just, say, a rear deck. Is that rear deck going to cantilever? Or can you throw in some posts and column footings and need to think through which is, which is the more cost-effective solution? Because it's, it's not always less money necessarily to, uh, to have to get concrete post footings and posts down.
2: It also comes down to the size of the deck, too, right? You know, and and what's going to sell? People love outdoor space, and cantilevering a deck you can only go so far, so many feet. So if you want that that larger outdoor space, which could potentially bring you a higher price per foot on your sellout, then you're probably going to have to go the you know the footing and post route. Yeah, and in wow. terms of the overall process, I mean, obviously every location
1: has a different process, but but here in Boston. You know, you you take your
0: rejection set, as we call it, and you bring it to the um, municipality for approval and you go through all your meetings. You're kind of locked into that once you get your green light here. So that's the other challenge is that you don't want to spend a ton of money over designing the thing from the the get-go. But you also need to realize that once this thing is approved, there are certain elements that really can't
1: be changed without triggering the whole review process again.
2: Mark, how early on are you bringing your structural guy?
1: It's a great question. I will take a preliminary schematic structural uh, architectural set and email it to my structural engineer. I use I use uh, you know, Renz and Jeremiah from from Hayes and O'Neill, and I'll get a blue beam mark, blue beam markup back within about a week. And, you know, all we're really doing is kind of overlaying each floor onto the next and thinking through how, you know, the weight of the building is going to transfer down. And, uh, you know, maybe looking at larger openings too, making sure that we've given some consideration to, to where the building might need shear strength and just talking through where, where steel may be required or not.
2: And do they charge you for that? Or is that as part of the overall cost of their structural design process?
1: Or- it's different an initial look like that with a handshake that, that 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 work would go to them. Should this get approved there, there usually isn't a cost or any kind of significant one. That is something that I'd recommend doing.
2: Oh, it's, it's, it's huge, right? Because it, it gives you a a professional set of eyes before you actually go through the process and being like, well, this does it work or does it not work? Or how much am I going to spend on structural?
1: For sure. so, I guess we can skip foundations because we talked about that last time, though that is a major uh, discussion with a structural engineer in conjunction with your geotechnical. But some other questions your your structural is going to put back to you as the developer or your architect. First thing might just be joists. Do you, do you want dimensional lumber engineered eye joists, which just have that web through the middle? Or are you going to run with a uh, open web joist? There's trade. There's costs and benefits to each. Dan and Ray, what have you guys been uh, opting towards lately?
0: We've always gone with the i joist typically. Done some dimensional lumber as well, usually in situations where we're sistering onto older timber uh, in like a gut reno. But for a new build, it's most likely going to be like an i joist and, and the interesting thing with i joists is that from a structural standpoint, they can also be designed where you're not just running one every 16 on center. You can also have them say, hey, give me a little... More rigidity to the floor, and maybe you double them up every three, every uh, uh, every third. And this way, here you're not adding LVLs as well, because to Dan's point, you know you want all the joists kind of running in the same direction, ideally, and you want to make it easier for your mechanicals to go
1: in.
2: Ray wants to try trusses so bad.
1: Trusses, yeah. So uh, we've been we've been doing some open web trusses uh, recently, and uh, I'm a fan. I think that the trade offs are um you suffer you sacrifice some ceiling height with the open web truss as compared to to an engineered i-joist cost wise i think there is a small premium to them they do tend to be a little more flexible you can uh, there's more of a shop drawing process some of these trusses there's two kind of garden varieties i don't want to get too far into the details but some of the open web trusses you have the ability to cut just on a, with a skill saw down down to length others are more like this uh, joist goes here and it's designed to go in that spot in the building and, and you don't want to, you can't modify that.
2: And the benefits to trusses, is obviously, A, you can run all of your HVAC through them, correct? So no softening.
1: Correct, yeah. That's a discussion you should have with your MEP engineer too because often you can provide blockouts or you can you can influence the spacing of the open web to make sure that you can accommodate the uh, HVAC
0: yeah I mean that was the only reason why I was pushing so hard at the time you know things have transpired at least in Boston where there had been some notable fires and uh, trusses are basically the fire department's number one enemy because they're so open and exposed they'll burn very quickly so from a fire safety standpoint during the construction phase not great and Mark you were saying that the the Ceiling height you'd have to consider because the the floor to ceiling assembly would be increased with a truss sometimes versus an eye joist. I mean, do you think that's still better than having soffits all over the
1: place? Yeah, or drop or dro- having to drop your ceilings uh, in select areas.
2: I mean, the one the one room that you're always almost always dropping ceilings in is bathrooms, right? Because with you know you have. Fan, ceiling fans and traps and plumbing and all this other crap that's always going through, you know, and stacks running down and having to get out to somewhere. So you're almost always, at least we are, almost always dropping bathrooms in our builds.
1: Yeah, for
0: sure. okay uh, hey, one little pro tip for people with the structural plans, once you have them and before you, you give them the final stamp of approval, just make sure they're not lining up directly under where you're going to be putting a toilet because there's nothing worse than your plumber coming in and saying, oh, we have to move the toilet. And if you're already tight on space, that's not going to be fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen that change order a few times, right? Um, you know, you would need to modify that in the field, head off uh, that opening to allow your plumbing stack uh, because that toilet is likely not going to move you can use an offset flange but you
2: really only you only get like a an inch or two out yeah, of an you offset do, but flange if, right? if, like a couple I've, inches I've been maybe. in a situation
1: where i'm hitting half the joist and i can maybe dirt by with an offset flange but it's undesirable offset flanges can get clogged more easily
2: the worst is if you if your toilet ends up sitting directly on top um, of an lvl yeah. that's even worse yeah, for sure <laughs> you know
1: the um, so. next question that comes to my mind, and this is usually an easy one for me now, we talk about subfloor and what's the detailing of the subfloor. Do you want traditional plywood? Do you want tongue and groove like Advantech makes a really nice product? Are you going to do a sandwich, where, where, which means plywood with a layer of sound mat in the middle followed by another uh, layer of plywood on top, which is good for acoustical considerations, but all these have costs. Have you done that? We have. We definitely have on, uh, on some of our more expensive stuff in the back bay.
2: I could see
0: the price ticking up yeah, pretty quickly why not? for resilient that, something like that. that. Kind of application.
1: I mean, you, you would do resilient channel as well on the underside for the ceiling, but what you're trying to mitigate is that impact noise and sound transmits. But Dan and Ray, you guys had an experience once, right, where, where your stairs were being cut and measured based on a detail that assumed... That same sandwich of plywood, which adds a certain element of thickness to the floor, right? And so had to recut a couple of stringers.
0: Oh, I think you're talking about we did a product called Gypcrete. So after we framed and put oh, down yeah. the floor, yeah, we um, was it was it an inch of uh, Gypcrete in?
2: Yeah. Yep. It ends up being about an inch. Yeah, okay.
0: and, and when you're and when you're doing that, and we were doing that to achieve a, a like you said a better sound rating, and that was through more of like a, a concrete and sand mixture. A, you better tell your structural guy if we're talking about structural framing, because if they haven't encountered mm-hmm. that in the load, that is a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And second of all, you do need to update all of your heights for everything, your door thresholds, going to the ceiling, your fixtures on the floor, like that toilet flange, everything needs to be elevated. Otherwise, when you go to pour it, good luck, it's all buried.
2: Yeah. You need to account for that when like you you said, Mark, you know, you know, cutting your stringers for your steps. You know, you need to cut that top step a little shorter because you know it's going to add another inch. Last thing you want to do is being going up your stairs and having different height
1: risers because of that. Stairs were just the first thing to get screwed up on every single job.
2: Always. There's always you always run into issues. Like one, like one job we had where the slab was poured and there was a there was supposed to be, you know, a step up in the vestibule where the stringer, bottom stringer would rest on to carry the stairs. And they poured that, that curb a foot too short. It should have been a foot further back. So when our stairs went up, we were supposed to have a bathroom above and that bathroom ended up getting a a foot shorter. And we got screwed in the, on the bathroom because it ended up being too small. And we had to like, we had some kludgy (laughs) little bathroom with like a weird shower opening and like just stuff like that. It's like, you have to measure so many times to make sure everything gets done correctly, and just double checking everything throughout the entire process because it's a trickle down effect.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, so so aside from subfloor joists, uh, we can go to exterior wall assembly and, and sheathing. Very so much. I've been doing a lot of zip wall.
2: I think that's the that's kind of the become more prevalent than just g- general, you know, wood sheathing Tyvek. with uh, yeah. a Tyvek.
0: It looks nicer too, you know? It really does.
1: I remember being like a year out of college on one of my first jobs and someone told me that, "Uh, like, dude, do you realize the guys put the Tyvek on upside down? Are you an idiot? And I was just like, oh my God. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's a rookie yeah, uh, jab c- right there. Construction
0: hazing. You know? um, <laughs> get, your, get your elevator. Back. Now
2: here's a question. Brown Brown zip versus green zip. Because no, you see right. it all the time. Yeah, it, red, sorry. Maroon. Brown, red,
1: maroon. <laughs> it's all, it's all <laughs> to do with the thickness of that sheathing Correct. and uh, what you need to achieve from that wall um, in terms of its shear strength. There's some limitations for a Zip wall. And the most notable, in my opinion, is uh, fire ratings. So if you're in proximity to a lot line, three feet or less, Zip is not a suitable... Exterior sheathing for that reason.
0: But when we were at IBS this past year, before everybody got
1: COVID. Oh, can we stop there? I think that everyone may have got COVID from IBS.
0: Yeah, where it
1: started. <laughs> I've been reading about yeah. <laughs>
2: Patient zero was at IBS. So it <laughs> on the internet
1: <laughs> says that, so I believe it. But there you go. <laughs> the the,
0: the shear wall. We actually were walking around there, and uh, the dense glass guys. Uh, which is uh, from the exterior, it looks yellow. So if you see it, it that's basically your fire rated product. Uh, and you also use it between units if you had kind of as like a demising wall, you had it in between units as well uh, for a fire rating standpoint. But that gives some sheer properties. I believe we were asking them about it. I think they have something
2: well, you have to paint it now, right? They came up with this like paste that you like paint the paint it on, or roll it on, and it creates like that rigidity that it it allows it to like once it cures, you know. But I don't know because I I heard from a, from structural once that like you can't just have the Dens glass as an exterior sheathing; it doesn't give you enough shear strength for the for your building. So I don't know.
1: It's a lot of ways to skin the cat. I mean, so. A couple of things that I've been talking to like my engineers about. One is trying to standardize stuff where possible. One example might be nailing patterns and shear walls. In theory, they're supposed to be X number. The nail pattern should look like this for this type of shear wall, or that for a different type of shear wall. In my experience with the guys in the field, they just kind of go crazy with the nail gun more often than not. So, you know, give me three types at most of, of nailing patterns for shear walls. That's one. And then another one, maybe like sometimes hold downs. I've gotten into problems where as a threaded rod was specified to be this diameter for this hold down and this diameter for that hold down. And I think it's designed with the best of intentions to save uh, money on materials. But at a certain point, the risk of mistake from just like an oversight with the wrong rod going, the wrong diameter rod going in the wrong place outweighs the, the benefit of maybe saving a few bucks on materials.
2: Agreed. More often than not, those are the things that are almost always overlooked by your framers, right? You're always walking through double checking and almost all of those hold downs or, or tie downs or half of them are usually missed for some reason. I, I, I am always going, I feel like I'm always going back to my framers being like, you missed one there, you missed one there, you know, like,
1: so the whole hold downs are super important, right? Like usually buying them from Simpson, and they're a much bigger part of my budget than I ever picked, than I ever imagined for framing materials. But in theory, they're starting at that foundation and they're going to trace all the way up to the roof, and they're they're holding everything together in the event of really a high wind situation like a hurricane. But you have options with with hold downs, and one thing that I I try to Push forward and design when I can is strapping on the exterior of the building. So they'll use uh, coil straps, fastened with nail guns, basically to your exterior sheathing, rather than perhaps following a post on the top of the post, the bottom of the post, the top of the post, till you hit the foundation. Like I think that's a it's an easier install.
0: It's funny how uh, the concern isn't how much load we're trying to resist or, or account for going downward, but it's it's that upward uh, load. Like the house just, you know, all the, well, that's why you see all those videos on the news of roofs flying away because they weren't secured or uh, that's a, that's yeah. a big goes. Luckily well, <laughs> well, we don't tie get down. them up here. <laughs> no.
1: all right, we were guys, joking man.
0: about like how many houses do you think we just have their roofs ripped off? if We had like a cat three or four come through here.
1: Yeah. It is kind of weird to think like all the modern code, when you think of it, um, all the stuff that we're doing in a new build, did not see any of that in, in, the, in the houses to the left and to the right that were constructed, you know, 80 years ago or 100 years ago. They're still there.
2: N- they've lasted. They've lasted. I think the other
0: thing that, that so. we haven't talked about but should be on people's radars, if you are in an area where you have seismic considerations, you know, you need to take that in, take that into account. So your structural plan and your framing plans may look vastly different because if there was an earthquake or something, you know, that's Something we just don't have familiarity with, and again, going back to that hurricane aspect of it. If you're in an area where hurricanes are more prevalent, or tornadoes, or anything, you know, you're going to have all different calculations, considerations. Unfortunately, this is what the structural engineer does for you. So I, I think the point is, you can't overemphasize the importance What's the point? of structural. <laughs> There's no point. Whenever I, know.
1: <laughs> I just, um, but, <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, to go back to finish the last thought. I think what an engineer, the guy writing the structural code would tell you is that the house that's still standing that's 80 years old doesn't have, you know, 10 foot by 10 foot window openings at the front and rear. Uh, so we've we've changed some of the way we build it.
2: Yeah, and they don't have like, you know, 30 foot open spans in yeah. the middle of the building. Yeah, like-
1: open concept is a lot <laughs> less prevalent. So yeah. I'm trying to think of like the big things that we get nailed with for change orders during the framing stage and things that are, are, are stumbling blocks. You for know, some reason, staircases,
0: I mean, staircases uh, uh, always f- seem to get us. Like they either don't count the risers uh, properly or something ends up happening and we reframed some of those areas. Like the most one of the most recent projects we did, we had to shift everything down a little bit. Dan, I don't know if you can speak to that.
1: So what I, what I like to do on stairs is if... if if there's an owner of the framing company or a foreman who's exceptionally good and I'm on site and I only have 45 minutes, it's just like, that's the first thing I go to. It's like, hey, we can talk about these other things later, but can we just put a tape measure on the ground and figure out this stair and just be okay with where it starts and where it's there, and make sure everything is is good. And then you mentioned toilet flanges. That's one that I see a lot. Headers, h- headers through windows. Yeah. I've seen this before where you have a big window with that with a large header. And the framing is basically coming into the window. I'm not sure if I'm explaining this well for a podcast, but essentially...
0: Yeah, what do you mean by that? You, you're talking about like you don't have the proper jack studs and all that stuff? N-
1: no, it's actually the height of the window is so tall that the, uh, the, the framing, the joists, are essentially falling within the opening of the window. So the architectural[s] weren't coordinated appropriately with the structural[s]
2: for windows. Oh, uh, I see. You know, I haven't, we haven't really run into that in any of our jobs, but maybe our windows haven't been go big ahead. enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would say, I mean, LVLs making sure that you know the locations or placements of the LVLs don't interfere with mechanicals because the last thing you want is an LVL. Running right through your living kitchen open concept living kitchen dining, and then you have to try to get your HVAC from one side to the other. Um, and you can't go through that LVL. I mean, you can drill small holes in LVLs, but you know, you're not going to drill an an entire chunk out of your LVL to run your your supply over there. So just making sure that you we almost always overlay our structurals with our architecturals very early on. And kind of get a rough idea on where we want to run, you know, main trunk lines, where we want supplies, where we want returns, et cetera, et cetera And where we do potentially want to drop ceilings and where we don't want to drop ceilings.
1: Yeah, I mean, so call it MEP coordination, certainly. And back in the day, they used to use light tables, uh, which is just what it sounds like. And uh, they would put the drawings on top of each other. and That's how you coordinate. Now we have pretty sophisticated software like uh, BIM, and we can use clash detection and try to make sure that we don't have any of those conflicts. So
0: I, We talked I think, about it earlier, uh, cantilevering, making sure that that's all done properly. That's another thing you look for mm. if you have that.
2: Joyce hangers, making sure that everything's hung correctly. I've seen you a know, couple of Joyce, Joyce hangers missing sometimes on like a triple LVL or something like that
1: yeah you know you gotta hit those easy things too, because in my experience, when the building inspector comes through and they see one small thing that indicates a lack of quality or attention, it just causes you to peel the onion further and continue to look deeper, so um you you, you have to you have to hit those easy things.
2: And one thing from a cost standpoint is joist hangers aren't cheap, especially when you start having to special order larger ones for, you know, like quad or specialty type joist hangers. And I don't know about you, Mark, but for some reason, after we're done framing, I always seem to have like one or two boxes of joist of hangers just lying around that haven't been used. I don't know if... They're sending me too many, or my framers are just ordering too many. But you know, make sure that you gather all of those joist hangers that are, you know, thrown throughout your project because those are the re- those add up. Those are real money. Those are real dollars that you can send back and get credit for.
1: Yeah, you, you definitely can return those. let me ask you a question. Your frame packages. Uh, let's talk about how you buy the framing out what scopes you're giving the framer, what you're leaving to your finish, to, to your interior carpenters, and then also who's paying for what. So I'll give you an example. One thing I like to do is I'll give the, I'll buy the framing package and my framer will, will provide me a, a labor only number. But I always ask him to include the nails because I've just found that nails go walking or otherwise they get strewn everywhere. They, and galvanized nails can, can add up, you know? It's
0: interesting. Maybe we do that. We, we do the same thing minus the nails. I like that approach in terms of what the labor covers. It, it gets you everything framed up, exterior, interior, gets you the... We've had different variations. So some have included or not, or have not included. Bridging, blocking, fire, additional fire blocking. So bridging and blocking on the exterior walls, if yeah. you have anything between the joists, and then fire blocking and softening. We've We've had... Different variations of what we would include.
1: So I always give I always give the framer the windows to install to. I like to actually give them mm. unit a, all exterior doors and my logic. Mm-hmm. Weather tight. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just want a weather tight building. My my. I don't have another carpenter showing up or a carpentry crew likely until you know we're ready for interior prehunt.
2: Our framing bid usually is usually covering all obviously framing blocking. Exterior doors, windows, and then, as Ray said, you know, sometimes it includes fire blocking, and sometimes it will include a certain num certain amount of softening. If we know that ahead of time,
1: yeah. Or you know, a good practice is just to uh, qualify a unit price in the contract for a price per linear foot uh, to build soffit. Um, so you're you're somewhat protected that way. What about decking and railings? You give that to your framer, or you leave it for your uh, finish carpenters to, to take. Go both ways, right?
2: Yeah, we usually. I mean, as part of the framing bid, if there's any, you know, framing involved with with decks in terms of, you know, just just framing the overall posts and and joists and everything, that's usually included. Sometimes the the decking and the railings are included, but since again, sometimes it's part of our finish bid as well.
1: Yeah. yeah. I prefer to buy they, like, it with the framer if I if I can. Yeah. I just cause was, I want to get it over with. If they have to do like ledgers and
0: stuff, then mm-hmm. it it makes more sense to have that be on the framer. And then, you know, if your deck is gonna be all framed up in steel, well then that's totally different also.
2: Well, I think also think it depends on the product. If it's just a typical Trex decking and railing that that's pretty standard and my and I know my framers are capable of doing it, then fine, I'll throw it in there. But, you know, if it's any, anything like a specialty, because typically, you know, your framer is a little rougher around the edges than your finish guy. So if it's any type of product that may need a little bit more attention to detail on, I don't typically like having my framers install it.
0: They might install it if you have to cancel the So I think it all depends on the design. And speaking of decks and consideration and designs, also just make sure that when you're looking at your elevations, we always have to make sure that you do have that step down because I think it's, what, six inches or eight inches. There's a certain number of inches you need. So at least for up here when there's snow or rain, it doesn't come right back into your house. You don't want want to be stepping up from inside your house to your deck because water is going to immediately find its way in
1: the challenge that we run into often on bigger jobs is that the uh, ADA standards uh, would not allow that step. You need a deck of a certain size. I think it's like five feet minimum so that a wheelchair can turn around and also that needs to be able to roll on and roll off. So those two things are somehow sometimes contradictory. Um, Interesting. So so you just got to be tight on your, on your waterproof.
2: I've heard both ways. I've heard some architects that some architects have told me and then they're like, I'm adamant that you don't need a step and that there will be absolutely no water that will come back in. And I was like, I- how can you just, how can you make that blanket statement? But, uh...
1: Yeah, you know, if it's, if it's done perfectly in an, in an ideal world, Hey, okay, <laughs> do you guys think that my uh, antibody test is uh, I'm getting tomorrow? What do you think? Do we want to take a bet?
2: Like on if you've, if it's going to, if you've had it?
1: If I have the antibodies or not. I think, I think I got it say no IBS. Say no. You think you got it at
0: IBS? Are you a hypochondriac,
1: Mark? <laughs> uh, <laughs> my wife works at, at the hospital, so I, I, I think I have a good so chance. So you here.
2: didn't get it at the IBS. You got it at home
1: from well, yeah. your wife. <laughs> it, that's you going to be the IBS. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Don't tell your wife that you got it at IBS. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the IBS was in February, and the Consumer Electronics Show was in Vegas at the same time. And there well, were a was a week. Before, it was a week before, right? A week before. Yeah. 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 So I think there's there's good cause here. We'll we'll report back. But uh,
2: so what about steel? Like, what do you, do you do? A lot of flitch plates between LVLs and stuff like that.
1: I have. It's very job specific for, for flitch plates or not, but it's uh So for those who haven't seen uh, a flitch plate, the notion is that you make a sandwich using engineered lumber like an LVL and a flat piece of steel and you will through bolts between the steel and the lumber, high, low, high, low. And in doing so, you're going to add, you know, a structure. Uh, What am I trying to say? You're going to make that beam strut. You're going to make a beam. You can have a longer, you can have a longer span. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You just got to, I mean, it's, it's a pretty, depending on how many, your sandwiching, it can be a very labor intensive process if you have a lot of those in a building. And we had recently we had one that had a, almost every floor had two or three. And it was, I mean, you need like four or five guys to lift that thing. It's, it's, it gets so heavy. So it's just you just get that's another concern from a labor cost standpoint, because it, it can get pretty pricey to to do that type of stuff.
1: Yeah. Safety becomes another concern too. Safety is something that i think about a lot like when i look at a set of drugs now sometimes i think like okay how heavy is that element you know hopefully you have a lull on site or you have the room to use it um but it's not, a, not always the case a lull on site <laughs> oh yeah i always ask on all of our big jobs we have a lull there full time for just that kind of thing
0: hey I a real quick question just going back do you ever run a uh a laser to make sure your floors that your new subfloors are all 100% level and flat.
1: That is a great question. I want I want to uh I have to pass.
2: Not only that is just not only floors but what about like walls and ceilings especially in bathrooms because you know, how many times do you start tiling oh, wow. and then you come to find out when they get to the top of your of the ceiling, you have like a slant down or it's like it yeah. looks like garbage because you know your your framing isn't completely level.
0: I know or checking for the you know that they ran the, the wood all the same crowning uh in like the kitchen wall for your cabinetry. Yeah. I
1: know. So you know, a, if I'm being honest, my my problem is sometimes even if I find something like that, assume it's not egregious, assume it's like within some standard, like then what? It's like, right. am I likely even if I'm going to pay for the materials, I don't really want to get into a big dispute. I don't, I want to keep the job moving forward. So it's, it's actually a question like, what's the best way? What
2: we've been doing, is it, what we've been is doing it, is, is what, if it's not crazy, if it's not crazy, like if it's not n- inches, right? If it's like, right. A quarter inch, or you know, half inch. Eighth, yeah. Yeah, you can easily fix that during board and plaster. Your plaster mm-hmm. can easily make that up when he's yeah. plastering the ceiling, and we, that's what, something that we always do. I always, I always am going in with, um, with a chalk line and not myself, but I'm making my plaster use chalk lines, in, especially in bathrooms or anywhere where there's going to be tile where you want it to be perfectly level and perfectly square so it looks really nice at the finish. I'm always having them do that and fix it. If you have a, a dip... Or, or almost like a, a crown when you're when you're plastering your ceiling. Or afterwards, okay. I'm always ha- I always have my plaster come back and smooth it out. So if I have, you know, I'll make I'll tell my tile guy I'll say pick the low point and and on the ceiling and make sure the the it's completely level across when you're tiling. And then I'll have my plaster come back and fill any gaps or any so so it looks perfectly flat. Afterwards, and and I build that into my plaster's contract to make sure that he comes back and fixes that, so that way everything looks perfect in all of my bathrooms where I'm going to be tiling. Does that make sense? Did I did I explain that correctly?
1: I get that now. That makes sense. The other place I see it is my siding guy calls me and says the corners are out of are out of true or not true or not ninety or not, and and, you know it gets tough to make that make that corner look good. So all things that I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm trying to check you know, as frequently as I can.
0: But I mean, again, like to your, to your point, I mean, if it's not, what are you going to have them reframe the house? It's it's one of those things where it's just frustrating. Like we had one a staircase. If you ran your diagonals, I think we were one of our staircase runs, one side ended up being longer than the other. And that ended up affecting not really anything, just more aesthetically. If you really look at it, you can see it. But it's just one of those things that'll drive us crazy, but no one else will really notice and it doesn't structure with your physically do
2: anything. It's just, it's, uh, there's so many little things that it's like, what are you going to get up on your 40 foot ladder and make sure that, you know, all of your sheathing is perfectly, you know, everything is lined up and your corners are perfect. And like, there's no flare outs or like, it's, it's impossible.
1: It's just, it's. You got to pick your battles, right? Yeah, exactly. One that I love is just roll the tape, you know, if I'm doing zip wall, it's not enough to just apply the tape and use the heel of your hand. Like it literally doesn't work unless you apply a certain amount of pressure to it. So Pongo L tape, roll the tape and just constantly, and I'll buy a bunch of rollers. I'll just spend a few hundred bucks and they're all over my job. If, if there are things that I can provide that will help prevent an error later, then uh, I'm all for it.
0: You know, good reason to have like a general contractor rather than hire all the different subs is so that they can't, like, the later subs can't bitch about the earlier subs. Oh, the framer was a was an idiot and did this all wrong. I gotta fix it, you know. And you hear the same thing with like the plumber and the HVAC guy going at it. Oh, they put their stuff in the way, and you know, uh, then you know, the, the painter's so- laying in the board, and plaster guy or the sheetrock guy. It's it's just like, come on, just yeah, dude, you, you should expect these things.
1: They're still gonna you're still gonna have those complaints. It's just that as the owner, uh, as a gentleman developer, which is a, to- a coin uh, a term that I want to copyright, um, you just might not have to hear it. you know it'll those grievances will be aired to a superintendent on site and to a GC and you'll show up in your uh, collared shirt once a week and just hear the pre- the pretty things. But uh, I don't think there's any money to be made uh, doing small scale residential as a uh, as a gentleman developer. I just, I think it's, it's really hard.
2: What about, what about, uh, just lumber quality in general, Mark? You know, sure. how, how, how often are you getting lumber that's warped? Conventional lumber, right? Like mm-hmm. your two by fours, two by sixes, two by eights, mm-hmm. you know, how often are you getting lumber that's warped? Have you come across lumber that's had mold, like mold? That's just sat yeah. out in the, in, in, you know, in the weather and the elements for probably potentially months before it gets onto your site. Like, How, how have you dealt with all that stuff?
1: Moldy lumber is a huge problem in the industry. And there's been some massive lawsuits on, on huge scale projects uh, with moldy lumber. I've seen it. I've gone through a building being framed up and seen, seen indications. And uh, frankly, I've, I've, my lumber company, had a laborer back over with bleach and our brush and PPE, and uh, and got rid of the mold because it was already in place in a few spots. I've seen that. And as for warped wood, there's a certain tolerance that I have and a certain number that I'll excuse. But if we get a bad batch and there's it's starting to pile up, I'll just ask my guys to put it all in one spot, and I'll call the, the you know my building material rep. We have a great relationship without, and we'll uh, just agree like, hey, I'm going to credit you back for this and and get you some new material quickly. And that's, that's probably the best you can hope to do.
2: Yeah, we've gotten, we've gotten entire pallets where like three quarters of the pallet is moldy. You yeah. know, and I'm like, it's, it's been bad. You gotta have your eyes open. You gotta have your eyes open because, you know, you, the framers will just keep going, right? You know, it's, uh, that's yeah. the problem. Like, you'll, you'll show up and, and all of that lumber will have been used in your project.
1: That to me is the key to like, to what is a good subcontractor though, is like, will they just keep going? And and I know subs across the board and I think I have a team now where for the most part, they they won't, you know, be it a, a, just think about like a a guy running duck work, you know, and there's a obstruction and they can pinch that duck work and somehow finagle a way to make it through. Or they can stop, call me, we can think about a solution.
2: Or they'll just cut what's in their way.
1: (laughs) in their way, yeah, get rid of that. But like, I, I really admire that in guys when they just won't do it wrong. You know, tile guy, plumber, HVAC, Framer, you name it. You know what I mean? Like, it's the guy who's just like, no, I'm not going to take that shortcut.
2: Yeah, it's part of qualifying your sub. If you're bringing in a new sub that you haven't worked with before and you're walking him through a job site and he's, you can tell that he's actually thinking about the job and he's actually thinking about how things are going to get laid out and where things are going to go and the process in which he's going to do it. Those are the guys that you want on your job. And if you have to pay a little bit of a premium for it, it's absolutely worth it.
1: I know we're getting close to the end here, but I always say you can scratch your left ear with your right arm, but why would you? And there's a million instances throughout the build, and especially in framing, where I'm just we're looking here. at the guys. W- w- <laughs> <laughs> you have all these little scenes. I love Mark's, it. Eight, Mark, nine, eight, Mark, Mark things, is yeah. uh, Mr. Analogy, basically. <laughs> It's just how my brain works. I just think in terms of uh,
0: <laughs> analogies. I know this isn't really 100 percent framing because it comes after mechanicals, but like, do you have, ever have an allowance, or do you ever account for when the electrician needs to add like a four gang box? And he, does he like does the electrician bitch and moan about having to add uh, another piece of wood on so that the gang box isn't going to be interfering with your trim, or yes. if they cut through a stud and then now you've got a dangling stud? I mean.
1: You deal with that stuff? and Deal with it. You know, we get changers there. The other place we see it is plumbing fixtures and showers where the stud isn't where it needs to be to get the valve centered. Wall hung vanities where the framing is interfering with where the drain needs to be. I usually carry a certain allowance and I, I think the framers do too. And that's part of the handshake. And the deal that I make at the outset is like, you work with me, I'll work with you if there are reasonable modifications and I can communicate these to you in a way that allows you to work efficiently. So you're not just constantly sending a guy back to do one thing. I don't see change orders for that. But
2: yeah, and a lot of times it's we we try to build that into our project management checklist, right? So mm-hmm. when we're walking through the job, you know, typically, you know, how our framers or how we like to work is, you know, they'll construct the shell of the building before they they put in any of like the interior partitions, right? Mm-hmm. So that way, yeah. you know, you can start laying out the interior partitions. And if you want to make a few tweaks, a lot of times I'll have them lay down like the plates. And then that mm-hmm. way I can see the layout. I can get it a feel for the, for the walls and the spacing of rooms and bedrooms and stuff like that. And so that way it's a lot easier for me to make a change at that point. If I want to shift a wall, you know, six to 12 inches in one direction, granted, hopefully it doesn't, mess up any, you know, load bearing stuff, but it makes it a lot easier to do that. And then at the same time, I can say, listen, this, my tub is going here. Please make sure when you're framing this partition wall where the tub's going to go, you leave space for my valve and all that stuff. And, you know, here's where I want my niche boxes in my bathrooms and things like that. So I try to make sure that I have that on my my checklist. So that way, you know, you can catch that ahead of time or for the most part, catch it ahead of time. So that way you're not going back and doing those changes.
1: Yeah. I'm a big believer in, the, in checklists and helps yeah. us manage all the many things we got to think about. But uh, yeah. I think this conversation has been fun.
2: Yeah. What's next? You want to add some more stuff?
0: Just a couple couple more pro tips before we go. <laughs> okay. Kitchen kitchen layouts and and make sure you add blocking so when your cabinet installer is yep. going to be hanging the cabinets it got something to screw into and the same for the shower. Make sure that you've accounted for uh, you might need to add a couple extra pieces of wood where your tile is going to switch to uh, your sheetrock or your blue board. And also, uh, and additional blocking for any fixtures like your uh, handheld, that sort of thing. Did I miss anything else?
1: Yeah, televisions. I'm, um, I'm, I'm typically adding blocking at uh, TV walls. Yep. And in
2: showers, blocking along the bottom for your where your pan's going to go. If you're doing, a, yep. depending on the type of pan mm-hmm. you're doing.
1: Oh yeah. Yep. All that stuff. So. All right. Cool. Very right, good stuff. So what's next? Nice. What's next in the what's build next? process? I think yeah, I think we right? got to go to MEPs, right? MEP, mechanical, electrical, plumbing. Episode
2: three. Sweet. Or part three. Part
1: three. Part three. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for listening, sharing, subscribing,
0: following along with us. And we will see you on the next one. Uh, If there's any feedback or anything for us, just shoot us a message and we'll catch up with you soon. Stay safe, everyone. Bye, guys. Take it easy.